Hey everybody, welcome to my podcast. Uh, this is pretty exciting because this is the first time we're doing this podcast with its new title. I'm really excited about this. I always complained about the old one. Uh, if you're in iTunes now looking at this thing, it might still have the old name there. I don't know if we've if we've updated it yet, but we're not calling this boozy banter anymore. Uh, we're calling it Beer and Loathing. Um, I can't claim credit for coming up with that one, but I think it's, uh, I think it's a lot better than what we had. So uh, here's our first episode under the new name, the new permanent name, Beer and Loathing. Uh, our guest was Alex Burns, political reporter for the New York Times. You follow politics, especially if you're on Twitter. He's on there all the time. Uh, his articles all the time in, in uh, the nation's uh, leading newspaper. So he came to my local bar. We sat down. We talked this past Sunday night. We took some questions on Meerkat. Uh, and by the way, um, if you want to join in the, the live conversation for this podcast sometime, um, you know, every time, uh, every time we have a new guest, I'll announce it on Twitter. I'll tell you when it is, and I'll put the link to Meerkat on there. You can just click on that Meerkat link. You can watch. You can join in. You can ask questions. You can make comments. So uh, think about doing that in the future, too. But for now, enjoy this week's podcast with Alex Burns. Welcome. Uh, it's a first ever edition. This is not the first time we've ever done this podcast, but it's the first time we've ever done this podcast under its new, exciting, permanent name. We've been calling it Boozy Banter since it began. I hated that title more and more every week we did this show. I put all of these pleas out on Twitter, all these pleas out there every week on this show. Can you come up with a better title? And last night at about 10.30, I was looking on Twitter and somebody named David Rockman, who I think is out in California, suggested... By far the best title I'd heard for this thing. It was just perfect the minute I heard it. He said, call it, ready for this? Beer and Loathing. I love it. So we're going to call this thing Beer and Loathing from now on. David Rockman, thank you for that. Uh, that's the new name for our podcast. This is the first ever edition of our podcast under that name. If you've watched this before, if you've listened to this before, then you know there's a few things going on here. We're live streaming this. It's a Sunday night right now in New York City. We're at a bar on the Lower East Side. We're live streaming this on Meerkat. We're going to take comments. We're going to take questions on there for the next hour. But uh, you might also be listening to this a few days from now on the podcast. We also have it up as a podcast. So however you're watching this, welcome. Uh, and you know how it works. We're here in this bar. We drink. We talk. We have a guest. Let me introduce this week's special guest. This is very exciting. Uh, he previously worked at Politico for six years. He was part of the, uh, the famous Burns and Haberman team. Uh, he was then recruited to the New York Times. He covers the uh, politics in the New York area for the Metro Desk there, New York City Mayor, Governor of New York, New Jersey, all sorts of exciting and, and uh, 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 ugly stuff happening there. So we could talk to him about that. Uh, he was, uh, this is interesting, he went to Harvard, he was the editor of the Harvard Political Review, and he was a researcher at one point for Doris Kearns Goodwin on a book about Teddy Roosevelt. So we can ask him about that as well. He is... Alex Burns from the New York Times. Alex, welcome. Steve, thanks so much. So let's get this question out of the way, first of all. It's, it's the first question that usually comes in on, uh, on Meerkat. What are you drinking? I'm drinking, I'm drinking a Belgian beer, the obscure brand Stella. I don't, I, I'm not like a person who knows about beer, so you sort of pick the brand and stick with it, so that when people ask you, like, what are you drinking, you, you have an answer. You want to have the answer. Yeah, yeah, but, you know, like the, the craft brew economy is not something that I'm well-versed in. Well, I'm drinking Bud Light, so I guess I'm, okay, I guess so. I'm kind of with you there. But I, I am excited because the beer that's like taken off, apparently, is one that I discovered years ago that people are just realizing now. Narragansett mm. has apparently become this big thing from Rhode Island. And when, so. people, when people name beer brands, I just sort of like nod and 
go and along this, with this it. Goes like, with, oh, yeah, this is, no, this, I, this falls into that category. Nice. Well, so let's uh, let's talk about um, and please, if you've got any questions here about politics, about the media, about gossip inside the New York Times, uh, send them in. Our moderator, uh, so our usual moderator Jeff, is away in Greece this week. Interesting time to plan his Greek vacation. Um, but uh, Brian is taking his place, so he'll be uh, he'll he'll elbow me if we have some good questions coming in. So um, get those coming in. We also have our usual. Icebreaker questions. We'll get to those in a few minutes. We'll ask Alex those, but let's just start with some, uh, you know, politics of the moment questions right now. I mean, if we're, if we're talking politics right now, we're talking Donald Trump. Uh, there were new polls out today. We had one uh, uh, at NBC that shows him uh, ahead in New Hampshire, that shows him basically tied just uh, two points behind Scott Walker in Iowa. I'm just curious. What do you, I mean, there's, there's two schools of thought in this Trump thing, I guess. I mean, there's, there's, I guess the conventional wisdom is it has a shelf life. He's never going to be the Republican nominee. It's, it's going to go away soon. And then there's some people who are starting to say, well, you know, who knows? Which camp do you fall into? I guess I fall into the camp. It's really, really hard, right, to imagine him actually being the Republican nominee for president. I think you can imagine a couple of checkpoints coming up that are going to show us sort of how real he is. Uh, the debate, I think, is going to be a really big moment for him. Can he, can this guy who is sort of accustomed to doing these, you know, hours long Castro style speeches, like actually perform in a rule bound environment? Uh, the other candidates are starting to go on the air with television ads. Is he going to really kick in the kind of money to compete in paid advertising and not just sort of coast on uh, free airtime? But, you know, while I think it, we're all appropriately skeptical of Donald Trump, We've been deeply skeptical about Donald Trump all along, and you know I think if you had taken a poll of political reporters, and I wonder if you were in this camp, but I think virtually 100% would have said he will never file. I think virtually 100% would have said he will never announce, and and I think certainly 100% would say that he would never have filed financial disclosures. Right? He's now done all those things, and there's certainly a constituency that's responding to him. So if the idea is he's just going to um, you know, lose the game of chicken here or like collapse under his own sort of, um, I got to be careful with my word choice here. <laughs> We've already likened him yeah. to Castro. So. <laughs> just just collapse, collapse under his own sort of, you know, enormous ego as a candidate. Like that has not happened yet. It, well, yeah, I, I guess the one that you mentioned those checkpoints, the one that, that I was sort of uh, latching onto was the, the financial disclosure. Right. Um, and I'd always heard, look, you know, the idea is obviously he's a rich guy, but people would say he's not as rich as his image is. And the minute he files those financial disclosure forms, you know, everybody will see the emperor has no clothes. That was, that was what people were telling me four years ago when he flirted with this, and I, I confidently said back then he won't run, and the fact that he didn't run, in my mind, validated that. So I was saying it, but no, I, I, I didn't think he'd ever take the steps he's taken so far, and, and I'm watching it now, and I, I, you know, I watched everybody predict last weekend that the, the McCain thing was going to be his end. And I resisted, I, I, you know, and I'm, I'm glad I did now because I, I don't know what his end's going to be. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I've been doing some research on Trump going back a ways, and I was reading an article about him in New York Magazine in 1987 Ooh. about, you know, sort of gaming out people who could challenge uh, Ed Koch if he ran for another term. And he was on the list, and he was on sort of the long list, and the reason why everybody thought Donald Trump won't ultimately run is because he'd have to do financial disclosure, right? So there is like a really long history of calling Trump's bluff, and, th and, and until now, 
like calling his bluff has been the right thing to do every time. But this time he's sort of blowing right past it. I love it. this. You're stumbling into one of my favorite uh, categories, the great campaigns that never were. We yeah. could have had Donald Trump versus Ed Koch from Mayor My favorite one in this category is Massachusetts in 1990. Barney Frank was embattled. The, the revelations about the prostitute who'd been living in his uh, apartment had just come out. Nobody was sure how this would go over in Massachusetts. And uh, the Republicans tried to recruit, as their candidate, a former television anchor from Boston named Bill O'Reilly. Oh and he goodness. met in the White House with Ron Kaufman in the Bush White House, and he almost did it. And it would have been Bill O'Reilly against Barney Frank. I can't, I That's just, tremendous. That is a race I wish we'd seen. Like the only matchup that could upstage Weldon Silver on mm-hmm. the same ballot. Can you imagine? That would have been the best year ever in Ma- Massachusetts. We have a couple questions, it uh, looks like, uh, coming in here. Uh, multiple people telling Alex to take the tie off. How about give it the loose, loosen it? You know, you don't you don't have to do everything they say. And um, UNC Johnny is telling me that I need to upgrade my taste in beer. Uh, well, UNC Johnny, I think Bud Light is one of the more underrated beers out there, <laughs> especially when you're not trying to get too drunk uh, while doing a show. A um, couple other things on Trump, though, I, from like the media standpoint, I'm curious what you think of this. Um, the Huffington Post made a lot of noise in the last couple of weeks by saying, we're now going to treat Donald Trump as an entertainment story. We, we owe it to our readers to do this. And then when I looked at what that actually means, it, it, it's something to do with how they categorize it in the, on the back end on their site. It still appears in their news site. It's still written by their political news people. But what do you think of, of, of what the Huffington Post did there, that, that whole issue of how do you treat Trump? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pass this one off to uh, one of the great Twitter users of our time, Sasha Eisenberg, who you should be following if you're not already who tweeted in response to that, you know, kudos to the Huffington Post for taking a stand against vainglorious celebrity campaigns for public office with a photo of a Huffington for governor in the, the <laughs> California California recall. Like, I mean, look, that, that, that's one more way of, of it, in this sort of ostentatious, we're not going to ride the Donald Trump bandwagon. It's just another way of riding the Donald Trump uh, bandwagon, right? And that's fine. That's a way to do that. Um, I suspect that the Trump material they're producing is still getting an enormous amount of traffic, as it is, I think, probably for everybody. And I wonder, too, this idea of, because I hear this all the time, I, I sat in for one of the shows this week, it was the day that Kasich announced, that John Kasich got in the presidential race this week, and we did a segment that was basically like, you know, look, Kasich is, is up against the clock here, he's trying to get into that top ten, you know, to be in the debate in his home state, he's not in the top ten right now, he announces, and he's overshadowed by Donald Trump, and this is the big challenge Kasich has, how do you get heard when Trump is taking up as much oxygen? And I got so much feedback on Twitter, you know, basically saying, well, the problem is you. If you would stop following Donald Trump, if you would stop covering Donald Trump, then somebody like John Kasich could get hurt. The only reason Trump is, is, is in the position he's in is because people like you are talking him up so much. What, what do you think about that, the, the media's role in all this? Well, I guess it seems to me there's a, you need to cover a candidate in proportion both to their sort of seriousness as a force in the race, objective uh, impact in the race, and as in relation to their support from the voters, right? So I think you can look at someone like Donald Trump and say, this man is not going to be president of the United States, or he's very, very unlikely to be president of the United States, so like, why even bother? Um, but by that standard, there are a whole lot of candidates over time who we wouldn't have covered, who you know were extreme underdogs, but whose campaigns revealed something about the country or about their party um, that told us something important. I remember in 2011, uh, covering the Republican primary, and thinking, you know, 
in the run-up to the debates then, I, I was at Politico at the time, there was Politico's doing a debate with NBC, and thinking like, gosh, we've got to come up with some questions for Rick Santorum, even though he is such a marginal figure in this race, right? And what do you know, he turns out to be the runner-up. So I think it's hard to, I'd actually be curious, your, your view as somebody with um, a TV platform, what do you, the alternative to looking at public polling to decide to admission into if a debate. A serious candidate or- right. The alternative seems to be letting sort of media mandarins say, you're serious, you're not serious, you're serious, you're yeah. not serious. And I'm not necessarily, I don't necessarily think that's a terrible idea, but I don't know how viable that is. I'm actually, I'm a defender of the, the Fox News criteria. Yeah. I know it take a, I, I, it's the worst possible way of, of planning this, except for all the other alternatives right. out there. I mean, you, you've got to, I, I, I think it's totally unwieldy if you want to put 17 or 18 people on stage. I think you need to cap it. I think you could even make a case for making it less than 10, but fine, you, you want to do 10. And, and, and what is the fairest way to do it? I, I mean, I really, I do think it's, people say maybe you should do the early state polls. Or, no, I mean, I really think it's, it, 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 you know, take the national polls. And the one thing that I, that I found is, you know, I mean, the debates, we see how, how much they drive uh, those national polls. You know, Newt Gingrich could have a couple of good debates, could, could move up easily, but we've also seen how fluid those national polls are, especially on the Republican side the last two cycles. So. I do think there's a chance if you're not in one of those debates that you can you can crack that top ten still. You know, you could you could get to five percent and zoom past Rick Perry and claim the you know ninth spot or whatever. Um, so there's still a chance for people outside the top ten to get in there. But no, I I, I think you gotta you gotta winnow it down somehow. And and people say, well, why not, why not have you know just two debates? You got 18 candidates, so have nine one night and nine the next night. And I guess you could do that. But the other problem then is, it, you know. Not every debater is made equally, right? So who gets stuck in the who's in the debate with Trump? Who's going to be on the stage telling them they're all a bunch of you know sellouts and they all you know can't negotiate their way out of a paper bag or whatever? And somebody else is going to be on the stage with Pataki. It's it's a totally different you know. I don't think that's fair either. And I do think there's some revisionist history about what happened in 2011 and 2012 with those. Um, you know, with the arc of that campaign, that obviously the debates were extremely important. That's how you end up with Newt Gingrich winning South Carolina. That's how you end up with the Michelle Bachman, Herman Cain surges. There were a couple moments in that campaign where people actually did manage to make something happen outside the context of the debates. Rick Perry never really had a good debate. Mm-hmm. He got to well over 30% in national primary polls. I think it was an NBC poll in early September that had him right. you know, crushing Romney. Before a single Just debate. by entering yeah. the race right. and by delivering his message the way, frankly, more like Donald Trump has delivered his message as a sort of big showman uh, in front of the cameras and the early state audiences. Newt Gingrich, yes, he won South Carolina because of that CNN debate, but there was the, the previous Newt surge in November, December. That was prompted by the union leader endorsing him in New Hampshire. And then there was all of a sudden this sort of confluence of national conservative attention and national media attention on this guy based on this newspaper endorsement that was clearly massively overplayed. He didn't, you know, nothing happened for Newt in right. New Hampshire. Um, but there are other ways of doing this. So this idea that, you know, the deck is just, you know, unfairly stacked against a, a Bobby Jindal or a Chris Christie or a John Kasich, you know, these guys got to a pretty high level in politics without the benefit of participating in nationally televised debates, and they ought to be able to make something happen. Right. I mean, at a certain point, it is on George Pataki, who right. has not run for office <laughs> since 2002, to prove he belongs on the stage <laughs> right. in 2015. Well, let me let me do this. We, um, we've made this a tradition since uh, ever since we had our good friend Ronan Farrow on the show about a month ago, and, and I always say I, I, I remember 
writing over. I mean, Ronan's a bit of a, a celebrity. He's a really good guy, but I, you know, I don't usually run with the celebrity crowd, so I was a little intimidated. And you know, I see him around the. I hope you're a okay lot. here because <laughs> the, the star power of this table is staggering. Well, you're a Harvard person. That, that's I got my own issues with that too. But um, but I wasn't sure what to say to. Uh, uh, to Ronan, so I came up with a list of questions. I, it's, it worked well, so we, we've made this a, a feature of the show. These are my icebreaker questions, and this week I've, I've put together 18 of them. Now, and I'll warn you, some of these, some of these, I think I've tried to tailor to, to you know politics and media, and I think they've been right up your alley. And some of these are just going to be the dumbest questions you ever heard. So, but the rule is you got to pick a number one to 18, and then answer the question. So, give it a shot. I'll start with uh, with 18. Number 18. Yeah, see, now this is one that is definitely not uh, <laughs> tailored to your, uh, your uh, career. But uh, who is your favorite secondary character from The Simpsons? That's an outstanding, outstanding <laughs> Oh, <question>. nice. <laughs> That's a really terrific question. Are you a Simpsons fan? Yeah, huge Simpsons okay. fan. I think it's probably, oh, God, I could just, I could think about this for hours, but I'm just going to go with, um, I think, Chief Wiggum. I think Wiggum is like an excellent figure of the sort of like old school, like Lieutenant Brannigan. Uh, that's a musical theater reference for the folks out there. Um, you know, like Officer Krupke kind of figure, mm -hmm. right? And the, him or maybe Mayor Quimby. I mean, as, a, as like a political guy, the Mayor Quimby as a, you know, watching that as an elementary school kid, I didn't even get like the Kennedy jokes, but right. you know. I didn't even get the New England accent, but now I do, and it's even better. I, I love. There are so many great Quimby lines. I remember the one he's he's listening to somebody bash him on television, and he goes, "I am no longer illiterate." <laughs> <laughs> I think mine, my favorite uh, secondary Simpsons character. It's it's one of the two Phil Hartman. It's either Lionel Hutz, the lawyer, uh, or Troy McClure, the the you know. Those are those are superb up. choices. There's this this um, uh, Lionel Hutz line that I, I my friend Paul from college is here. He probably remembers this when we said this one over and over in college. It's when uh, Lionel Hutz they, they draw a, a judge who he has a history with, Judge Snyder, and he, <laughs> sure, and he goes, right. "Uh oh, we've drawn Judge Snyder. Is that a problem?" He goes, "Well." Let's just say I, I kind of ran over his dog last year. <laughs> he says, if you replace the word kind of with repeatedly and dog with child. <laughs> See, the, the Simpsons line that's used most frequently, that I've heard used most frequently in this campaign, Maggie and I use this all the time, the uh, um, Krusty the Clown, when he's talking about, um, I think he's like tax fraud or something, he he's, says that some charity moved me to a bigger house, and then he says, oh no, I said the loud part quiet and the quiet part I, loud. Actually, it, right. you know what episode that was? That was the Critic crossover. He was on the, 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 he was, they were deliberating the best film for the Springfield Film Festival, deciding between a man for, uh, a Burns for all seasons, and um, man getting hit man in the getting with football. But there are so many candidates we've seen, right, who do the loud part quiet, quiet part loud thing, where you're, I mean, Trump just yesterday, right, in Iowa, uh, out there saying, you know, Scott Walker, uh, this fundraiser of his, um, said something critical about me, so finally I can attack him. Right. Right, just, just put it right out there. I love these. I, I actually, I was, I was home yesterday afternoon, and I was, um, I, everybody on Twitter is, is, is following this Trump speech, and MSNBC, you know, we, we, our programming goes off the air at 2 o'clock, and uh, CNN didn't have it, and I, like, C-SPANs, they had, like, you know, History of the War of 1812 or something, but they weren't, they weren't showing the Trump speech, so I was all upset. And then you know, somebody emails me. is like, are you watching this? I said, where can I watch it? And he said, MSNBC Shift. I was like, oh, that. I totally forgot about that. So I, <laughs> I went, and sure enough, this is my plug for my employer. I'm sure they're going to love this one. Um, so I went and Shift, and I, and I watched it. But I have to say, it's just like as pure 
It was just pure political theater. Um, Trump thing is, this would be a, a boring summer without Donald Trump. It really would. I wanted to laugh. There was an onion. There was a, one of those onion stories this week. It was like Donald, it was Donald Trump op-ed saying, "Admit it. You want this? You just want to see how far, this, see how can far this goes." Yeah. And that's, that's how I feel. Um, all right. Well, that was an uh, unexpectedly fruitful icebreaker. It's encouraged me to ask you to, to uh, pick another number. I'll pick three. Lucky number three. I got. This is the worst question on here. But uh, uh, this was this is like because I think I had come up with seventeen, and I was like, I need one more. Uh, do you prefer, you write about politics, you report about politics, do you prefer doing it on the road or working out of an office? So I love being on the scene. I hate flying. No kidding, me too. Yeah, so, so this is part of why my current job is great for me because I can, it's you know very focused on sort of New York and the New York area because you can be sort of on the road, though in many cases that means like the subway. Uh, to the destination that you're covering. Um, but no, I think being there is important. I think being able to, I think there are many times where what you see on camera does not reflect sort of how people are responding in the room or how the candidate is actually uh, behaving. And they're just sort of detail points that you see in the way they interact with um, with their supporters or the way their staff interacts with uh, uh, supporters that's, um, that's just helpful to see. Your flying issues, is it, is it the hassle or is it, are you scared of like? I'm scared of flying. Yeah. How often do you fly? Um, you know, in 2012, it was a lot. So it was like one of those fear factor things where they were like lowering me into the, um, you know, glass box surrounded by scorpions or something, right? But I finally got, you know, I got to the point where um, my wife is over here and, and uh, my in-laws live in Hong Kong. So like that's not accessible that's by a, any other means of boat. transportation. <laughs> right. I mean, I guess you could do that. Uh, and I finally got to the point where I was okay doing the 15-hour flight, and I sort of settled into it and read some giant book or whatever, and the last flight we took back was like the most horrifically turbulent flight I have ever been on, and so now I'm back, and if I was on like stage 11 of the 12-step program, I'm back at like three. I, I am so glad. I, I rarely have a conversation with somebody. I, I have the word, I have a these terrible fear questions. of These are good questions. Yeah, no, I, I mean, both of these, both of these are, are, are whole runs. Well, no, because I, I, I have a lifelong fear of flying. I did not fly from uh, April of 1996 until the summer of 2012. I managed to avoid it. And then for work, I had to, in, the, in the summer of 12, I had to fly to the conventions. Um, and it, it, it's, I still, I, I've flown maybe eight times since then. Everything about it, I, you know what I feel, what I tell people is my, my fear of flying is this. It's, I spend a week before the flight, you know, I can still cancel it. Can I take a train? Can I take the plane? Can I get away with staying home? It's the idea of being up there in the, in the air and something goes wrong and we're just careening toward the ground, 40,000 miles an hour. And what's your final thought? I could have stayed home. Totally. What a terrible way to... When your flight is delayed and they ask you, do you want to switch to another flight? And it's like, well, if I switch to this other flight and it goes down, then I'm going to feel like a real idiot. Right? <laughs> Well, I had that my first flight after after 16 and a half years of, of not flying. It was uh, to Charlotte for the, the Democratic Convention in 2012. So I showed up at, um, and I had just started at MSNBC, so they arranged the flight, and they, they tell me, you pick up your ticket. I, I don't know how this all works, because like, the last time I went was like my parents. And um, so I show up at the airport, and I go to the counter, and they're like, don't you want to use the kiosk? And I don't know how to. So, then, <laughs> so I, I, I give her the information, and she's like, your flight was yesterday. And I, cause I got the date wrong. And then she's like, we can get you on this one for today. It's going to be like triple the price. I'm like, I think MSNBC pays, so it's okay. But I'm, the, my thought is, 
So wait a minute. Is this like? Is this gonna? Is this how God gets me? Yeah. Like, you know, I, I get on the second. Like, I, this is the one that was gonna be safe, and I get on the one. And it ended up being there. It's been some hurricane that had just passed through, like the Mid Atlantic. So we flew through that. Obviously, we made it. Well, we got more questions coming in from Meerkat. Let me. Uh, <laughs> Says Jocelyn wants you to take your show on the road on a tour bus, John Madden style. No, we're th- we're, we're thinking about going on location with this um, actually a little bit. Um, if you have any, uh, somebody was suggesting Las Vegas last night, but we got to go places where there's like political people. I think so. Although we've had entertainment folks out, we go to Las Vegas. We could we could get who's big in Las Vegas? Is there a Wayne Newton Do- out there? Donald Trump. Is, who's that? Donald Trump. Big Scott, in Vegas. Donald Trump. <laughs> Celine Dion, Paul, Paul says. But Paul's going to Canada next week, so he's already he's already thinking like a Canadian. Um, let's see. Let, let's do one more of these icebreakers, and i got some more questions for you. Give me another number here. Do eight. Number eight. Uh, see, asking for a friend. Is it unethical for a political journalist to buy one of those Donald Trump Make America Great Again hats? That's a great question. Um, my own, you know, at the times we actually have like a, an ethicist uh, staff, right? That I mean, they've changed it some, but so you could consult them. But the um, I would have a friend maybe buy it for you, like launder it through. through I like somebody. how you're thinking. I like yeah, you don't. This wanna, shows you've been covering New Jersey politics for a while. <laughs> <laughs> you don't want to have your name in some, uh, you know, Donald Trump email uh, fundraising list, right? Because then, once you've put your credit card information there, and once you put your email information there, then they'll rent it to also all kinds of other groups. So get some sucker friend of yours to do it for it's you. It's true, although then you might have a story, because then you could see exactly which groups they rented That's it to, true. and there could be a controversy there or something. So really, it's it's just, you know, it's, it's like deep cover journalism that you're doing well, here. Well, to me, it's also, it's business. It's it's an investment, because I, like two years from now, those hats are going to be like the trendiest hipster item. <laughs> you, know, you could sell them in Brooklyn for 100 bucks or something. I so. bet you could make it on Cafe Press yourself. Actually, you know what? There's the solution. Although right. "Make America Great Again," as Trump <laughs> told the world yesterday, is now a trademark. Did he, tra- uh, did he trademark? trademark? Yeah. So Donald Trump. So okay, he loses all the sponsors, and he makes up for it with right. with "Make America Great Again." Um, we'll come back to more of these later. But um, so I, I mentioned at the at the at the top, you were Doris Kearns Goodwin's. You were her assistant. I would tell, I tell me about that. Um, so I worked for her from. I was in college, it was like summer of 2006 through 2008 or so. It was right after she had, she had just finished the book tour for um, Team of Rivals and was starting this project that eventually became uh, The Bully Pulpit, this book about Teddy Roosevelt and William Howard Taft and sort of the um, you know, muckraking journalism culture of the time. Um, and like, I mean, just on a personal level, you couldn't ask for a, a better boss, like a more attentive, um, sort of considerate person who wanted to be a mentor as well as um, have you doing archival research. And, I, you know, I was not somebody who was particularly into, um, you know, I mean, I think I knew the broad things about Teddy Roosevelt that everybody who's interested in politics knows. I didn't have, like, a deep sense of his record. I didn't really know anything about Taft except for, like, the photo of him on the horse or, like, the you getting, he was big. getting yeah. stuck in the bathtub thing, right? <laughs> and it was a great experience for a whole number of reasons, but, but one of them really was that was coming away, and I think that folks who read the book um, will probably have the same impression, that coming away with this sort of deeply sympathetic sense of Taft, who is relegated to being this kind of punchline as like the fat guy president, 
um, that his record in many ways sort of exceeded Roosevelt's in the areas that Roosevelt cared about a great deal, and that his experience prior to becoming president, being governor general of the Philippines, which is a place that most Americans don't even realize like we used to run, right? Um, just an amazing sort of man of his times. It's interesting too when you when you start. I, I found this too not with not with Taft. I, I I've read a few books on that, but just the concept of these these underrated, underappreciated presidents in history. Because we have like you know, whenever you take the survey, and Kennedy always rates highly just because of the sort of the Kennedy mystique or whatever. Uh, I remember writing in in uh, in high school, and I did this in part to be. Um, because I, I, I knew everybody in my class was going to say, like, can't, they, like, who's the best president like of, of your lifetime? I think that's what they asked. And I was like, I guess my instinct was I want to pick the one that nobody else is going to pick and then just see if I can defend it. And so I, I picked Gerald Ford. And, I, and I, I actually thought I came up with a pretty good, a pretty good, I mean, it was like, I, I said, I said, I think the Watergate pardon was the right thing. And I said that only, be, I mean, at that point, it's 25 years later, but it was like Nixon had really had paid the price. I mean, Nixon's place in history is going to be trash forever. Um, do you really need to drag the country through a four-year trial of Richard Nixon to, to make the point? And it would have been very easy for Gerald Ford to say yes, and, and he didn't. And it was probably the right thing. That's So I have, that was my defense of Gerald Ford as, as of course, the greatest the, president ever. <laughs> now you have the, you know, not of course not prosecuting Nixon now allows like the school of Nixon revisionism to come through, right? That like downplays the fact that he was, you know, almost certainly breaking the law from the Oval Office in a rather dramatic way, and you get almost this sort of Nixon nostalgia even from folks on, like, the center-left that, like, well, but the, the EPA and the, and the Clean right. Water Act in China, right? And, um, you know, of course, like, all of all of those things can be true at the same time about a president, right? And that's part of the value of doing kind of the deep dive on somebody who's not particularly appreciated. That it's a to say the obvious, it's a really big job, and if you get through it without being like a total catastrophe, then you must not you can't be all bad, right? right? You can't just be some dope from you know you can't just be the Gerald Ford on The Simpsons, right? Who likes nachos and football. <laughs> what um, by the way, do you follow the um, on Twitter? One of my favorite people to follow is the fake Richard Nixon. Do you follow? I do. I do. Well, which which one do you follow? Right. There's two. There's one that really I, I think is Dick Nixon, Dick's, right? Dick, Dick underscore Dick Nixon, Nixon to me is like the, the captures the, the voice one. of it. Yeah. It's it's amazing, you know. And I think the guy I I, I think he was he was I don't know if he added himself or if somebody but I, he's like 33 and a playwright or something something like and that. And he just he read the Nixon transcript. It's an, and it's he has, an amazing. He's internalized the voice. And I haven't even spent a lot of time listening to the Nixon tapes or something like that, but I just feel like Nixon is kind of whispering back there every day on Twitter. <laughs> no, I actually, I'll find myself, like, I'll read his, his Twitter, I'll read his commentary, and I'll actually feel I'm absorbing some, some wisdom from somebody who's been there, and then I'm like, no, he's been dead this 21 years, actually, this no, is not, yeah. <laughs> but you feel like you're talking to him. Like, I also feel like it's like, it's the closest I'll ever come to having that kind of relationship with a, a former president or, or anybody at that level, for that matter, so it's... Um, so it's a it's a fun thing. Um, pick another number here. Let's see. We're we're I'll do we've had a few good ones so uh, far. Eleven. Number eleven. Again, this one has nothing to do with your career. Um, when you've had a terrible day, and you just want to feel sorry for yourself, what song do you put on? I don't. Sorry to bring the mood down. <laughs> no, I mean this is. I, I hate to sound like. Uh, uh, you know, like Ned Flanders or whatever, but like I'm just not a. You don't, don't have bad days. I, I, I do have bad days, but like, I don't go home and feel sorry for myself. Like no. I just don't, right? Like as Nixon, as the Dick Nixon Twitter account would say, right? Like a, a, 
A man does not do that. <laughs> what does that make me? Because <laughs> I got a list of like five here. I'm more likely to go home and like put on, uh, you know, put on like an episode of um, like a Homeland season that I've already watched six times. Right, and like that's my sort of, uh, you know, or one of like the darker Batman or uh, 007 movies, and just like wallow in that, in that sort of space. Okay, yeah. So, what are your, what are your uh, Homeland? What are your TV Netflix tastes right now? What are your? So, unfortunately, much of this is not available streaming on Netflix. But um, just finished. I'm, I'm many seasons behind on Justified, which is a tremendous show. And uh, I watched the first two seasons. Fell behind. It's about a U.S. marshal in. in uh, Kentucky. It's like an Elmore Leonard um, adaptation, and it's just an amazing, like modern western uh, kind of show. So I have three seasons of that ahead of me. Um, I was really into. Um, I was really into Homeland. I was really into. I was into Twenty Four. I was into Lost back in the day. That was a big mistake. Did you? Uh, yeah, I was really into Lost, and I stuck with it. And now I'm like the last. I don't know, three, four seasons. It, it was when they did time travel. That's when they lost me. Because it I just mean, became too confusing. They never lost me, and I stuck with it all the way to the end. And now, like, I can't get those hours of my life. <laughs> well, because you thought it was going somewhere, and you thought there was going to be this big review. We, I, at one point, I thought I would understand life if I watched Lost to the Bitter End. And, Maybe you and, did. Maybe you did. That you, yeah, life's you a joke stick on with us, it and right? Stick with it and stick with it. And in the end, it's like, aha. And there's nothing. There's no punchline. We got. Let's see. We got another uh, another question coming in. Oh, so this is interesting. So someone asked you, so what's it like, compare working at the New York Times to working at Politico? Um, well, it's an, interesting, it's an interesting question, both because they're very, very different sort of institutions, and the, the beat that I'm working on is very different now than it was a year ago. So at Politico, I was doing national politics, um, mainly with an eye... You know, focus more on Republicans than Democrats. Um, that's just the nature of, you know, when you're like a political reporter in 2010 and then 2012, when you have sort of a Democratic president defining one party in its entirety, um, you know, it's the other party that you spend more time on. Covering now New York and to some extent New Jersey and Connecticut, the Republicans are not that relevant, right? right? With, the, with, the exception of, um, with the exception of Chris Christie. Uh, so now to go from essentially covering sort of intra-Republican um, warfare to covering, you know, de Blasio, Cuomo kind of warfare um, is a totally different focus and a great challenge and a lot of fun. Um, as far as, like, the institutions are concerned, um, you know, I was a Politico starting, all, like, basically a year after it began. So um, the difference between Politico and the Times, it's sort of, I could sort of say, like, which Politico? That, you know, being there when it was 40 people or 100 people or 200 people, um, it changed a lot even, even in the time that I was there, and, and it continues to change. Um, the thing that's so great about, um, one of the things that's so great about being at the Times is that you're just surrounded by all these people with, like, incredibly deep and long and varied uh, experiences, and so that your colleagues on Metro politics may be and are, you know, you won a Pulitzer Prize for covering Wall Street, right. and you broke this, you know, massive investigation that sort of like, defined New York politics when I was a teenager, and um, you, you have, I think, like a great sense of sort of humility and enormous burden in going about the job to feel like you have to live up to what your readers expect, and you are reaching a set of readers that, that don't read, um, in many cases, anything else, right? So, you know, I grew up in a household where 
if my mother said she saw an article in the paper, there's only one paper she was talking about, right? So to cover the New York beat. So you're talking about AM New York, is that right? <laughs> right. The, which is, a, which is a, a great paper in its own right. But the, uh, you know, to cover New York in the city where that population is sort of most concentrated, there's, there's an impact and sort of a, a gratification in the, in the work that, um, that is different and it's a lot of fun. What do you um, the New York Times style of uh, Mr. Ms. Mrs. What do you think of that? Is that a bit much? It, was, it took a couple weeks to get used to it, and I remember in the first story I filed, there were, I had like three correct references to Mr. Cuomo, and then the rest of the story was like Cuomo, 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 <laughs> Cuomo, and you and you can't do that. Um, I kind of like it. I kind of like treating treating them with like a level of. of decorum um you know the uh it's fortunate for the summer of trump that we already have that style because as as folks who spend any time talking to trump world they only refer to him as mr, mr. Trump. trump mr right. trump it's never donald it's never I've just heard trump reporters who are now on the trump beat covering him they unconsciously lapse into it i think because they hear it so much and i hear reporters who would normally just say trump Walker Bush, they start saying Mr. Trump, Mr. Mr. Trump. Mr. Trump. It's like a culture around Mr. it, you know. Somebody at one point, I think John Chay compared it to uh, Mr. Lebowski, the right. you know the Philip Seymour Hoffman. Right. You know, it was. Um, so I grew up in Massachusetts, and the Times. Sometime when I was a kid, bought they bought the Boston Globe, but they also bought the Worcester Telegram and Gazette, the, the big paper of Worcester. And the Telegram and Gazette decided, or maybe was forced to, they, they adopted the Mr. Ms. rule. And it was just, it was ridiculous because it's like, you know, the Worcester Sewer Commissioner, you know, Mr. Grabowski. And he's like, no, come on. It's like, but they, every single person in like Worcester politics, Worcester County politics suddenly was getting this level of dignity that you didn't, you didn't grow up associating with them. So I always, I always thought, I don't know if they still do that up there. Um, here's something I wanted to ask you about too. This is on my, this is not my list of icebreakers, but this is just something I want to ask you about. There's, um, there's, there's a, Twitter's an interesting thing when it comes to political journalism for, for a lot of reasons because there's. There's so much breaking news on there. There's there's so much smart commentary that's available, and and you can you know I've always found like I don't know how I existed in in the media before Twitter because it's I can go away for two hours, turn on Twitter, and I wow that's what I missed. Okay, but there's one of the things on Twitter that, that fascinates me is there's this interaction between political reporters and political scientists, and there's sort of a, there's a there's a, almost like a, there's some tension, and you are and there's you are on there's there's the fault lines the political science people who sort of say. Ah, look, when you look at these elections, there's all these structural factors about the state of the economy and the approval rating of so-and-so, and, and, and 90 to 95% of it is already you know, set in stone at the beginning. And then there's the political reporters, uh, a lot of whom say, there's more fluid than that. And you're, I get the sense you're very much on the, on the it's more fluid than that side. Well, I'm a big believer, not just in politics, but just in sort of... You know, I was a, a humanities major, right? Um, a big believer in the role of contingency and chance in just human history. Uh, I think that the political scientists have, you know, I'm not dismissive of the idea that there are big structural factors that are really, really important. Um, but if you know, I don't know about 90, 95%, but if 80% of this is already overdetermined by external factors, like the remaining 20% matters a lot, right? So to be sort of dismissive of that, to me, is where you run into trouble. So, you know, when you look at, you know, I don't think that you end up with, um, when you look at an election like 2012, 
like did the 47% comment cost Mitt Romney the election like probably not like when you look at the right like larger trend of the election yeah he dips down and then he comes back up and at the end of the day the electoral college is what it is um but you know I remember covering that Republican primary and in a world where you know you can look at a couple states here and there where if the outcome had been slightly different, if Rick Santorum had come out two points ahead in Ohio, Ohio instead of two right, points behind, right. or two points ahead in Michigan instead of two points behind, you have a, you know, panic in the streets in the Republican right. Party, right? And so the idea that that didn't happen doesn't mean that it was never going to happen, right? I think there's a danger in looking back, and you and I got into it a little bit over the Ross Perot thing. Yes. Right? And it's a little <laughs> To me, it's just there's... It's, it, 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 it can always look in retrospect like it was always going to happen this way, right? Like it, it, it always had to happen. And, and realistically, like it didn't, right? That if, you know, if some shady stuff hadn't gone on in Illinois in 1960, like maybe we have eight years of Nixon starting then. Or maybe, you know, you can go down the list of, I mean, here in New York. I think you have had a great example of the importance of like contingency and strategy and human action in campaigns in that if a series of very specific events hadn't unfolded in the summer of 2013 with Anthony Weiner entering the race and then imploding with a federal court ruling against uh, the Bloomberg administration's stop and frisk policy and putting that at front and center in the campaign. If you hadn't had Bill de Blasio put exactly the right television commercial on at exactly the right time. Do we have Mayor Mayor Bill Thompson right now or Mayor Mayor Chris Quinn? You know, you know, I think if you're a political scientist and you see that as the exception rather than the rule, that's fine. Like I don't I don't think that that's an illegitimate view of things. But to me, like the exceptions are what makes it fun. And right. I do think there's a legitimate complaint among political scientists that political reporters tend to, and I do think it 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 behooves political reporters to be self-aware about this. That political reporters do tend to treat every gap as super important, every television commercial as decisive, right? The you know we all still talk about the Hillary Clinton 3 a.m. phone call ad, right? Like was that was that was did that win her Texas and Ohio? And I don't know if it won her Texas and Ohio. If you look at the rest of the states she won, those look like states that that she was going to win. Um, and I do think that there's a tendency in, in among political reporters to treat everything as though it's like the biggest thing ever and it's it's valuable to have a sense of you know humility and proportion in that um I, you know it's one of these i've i've come around on this i feel like i used to be if, if we were having this conversation five years ago i would have been close to an absolutist on the political science side of this and i would have said you know it's it's every story that comes up i would have had that it doesn't really matter you know attitude and, I, and i've come around in, in, in this way so you mentioned like in 2012 with romney and in the gaffes and everything and in one school of thought, the political science school of thought that, that looks back at 2012 says, well, look at this. He, he said X. We took four polls afterwards, and there was no real movement. Or if there was movement, it immediately corrected itself. So therefore, X didn't matter. And, and at a certain point, I started saying, well, I think that may be the wrong way to look at it. Because it may be the accumulation of X and Y and Z spanning nine months that somehow congeals in people's minds yeah. to form an impression in a way that's totally not quantifiable. And, and if you're trying to make politics a science, you need to be able to quantify it on some level. And I don't know how you measure that. And I also feel like when you, when you start asking people, like, it, it's the, I, this one I believe when you talk to political scientists, they say when you ask people, like, what are you looking for in a, in a candidate, the, the worst way to find out what voters actually want is to ask them because they answer aspirationally. 
they tell you they want the candidate who's going to talk about education, who's going to, and they never actually, never, but they frequently do not reward what they say they want. It's sort of like a, the famous old example in television was always, they said, if you went by what people said they watched, the highest rated show in the history of television would have been Ken Burns' The Civil War. Because everybody said they watched it, but nobody actually did. But it was one of those, you aspired to watch a show like that. So, I, I, you know, I, I think there's, I, I, I've come around a lot on this, and I think there's a lot more, these things are more fluid, especially primaries. I mean, general elections, I think we've become much more sort of this partisan divide is, is a lot more set in place right now. But I think in primaries, and we're really seeing the Republican primary, I, I couldn't, I, I've, I've the old me would have been very absolute right now and been, Donald Trump will never be the nominee. I, I'm not saying it right now. I don't know. I won't even say Chris Christie won't be the nominee right now. I think there's also sort of like a how to lie with statistics element to some of the political science stuff in that, you know, I, I, I was a humanities major, but I did, did take stats in college. And the absence of movement in the polls does not mean that there is not an effect, right? So there was a, a much-hailed study after the 2012 election claiming that the negative ads run against Mitt Romney on Bain had no impact in the race because his numbers stayed steady. Well, for his numbers to stay steady over a period of time where the unemployment rate was ticking back up and he had solidified the Republican Party behind him and he was hitting the Should have been going party, up. His numbers yeah. should have been going up. Right. And they weren't, right. right? So is that, can you prove that there was no effect? Like, no, you actually can't. Right. So I think it's valid to sort of read the data that way. Another another thing here, and like I think a lot of political scientists will acknowledge this themselves, you know, when you're dealing with actual science, hard science, like a clinical drug test, you're dealing with thousands of samples with which to right. make incremental conclusions. When you're looking at politics, you're looking at on a good year, you know, 50 and change primaries and one general election. And, you know, couple dozen polls that the methodology of which varies widely. So I do think, look, if the point is political reporters should have humility about drawing vast conclusions, yes, of course. And I think that like we can all work on that. Um, but I think the same is true on the on the science side that, you know, when you hear people, when you talk to people who are, are you know, in medicine or in, in, in scientific research, they have an, they feel an incredible burden of proof before they state something as fact, right? And by this, if you take those standards and apply them to politics, I think it's virtually impossible to, re to reach that level of certainty. I still think Perot didn't cost push the election. I but. think, look, you, you, <laughs> I thought you made a very persuasive case. Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, let's go to another uh, icebreaker question. You've uh, picked three or four of these so far. Pick another number. Um, uh, let's go lucky 13. Lucky number 13. Well... You know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna make you pick another number because this is too similar to something we already talked okay, about. Okay, so. uh, uh, fourteen. Number fourteen. Oh, I like this one. What is the best state license plate? Uh, uh, California. Why California? Because you got the bear. Wait, I thought California was like sunshine and cursive writing. Does Alaska have the bear? You're thinking of the flag. No, wait, I, or no, you think California of, flag has the bear. You might right. be right about this. The license plate because they the LA law that when they shut it. The, this is twenty years ago, but. The opening can of the uh, Adam is Adam is checking this. All right, well, you're gonna have to okay, pick so a new license plate. license plate. All right, California flag. Just for the record, <laughs> I'm gonna go with state license plate. Yeah, that is the uh, that we, we have a. Oh yeah, that's Casey is in the podcast, but somebody's kind of, just shown us a, kind of a throwback in a nice it's way. It's not but, bad though. It's it's fine. 
it's fine. I don't know that I've, I don't know that I have great thoughts on this. The Delaware one is like wonderfully um, sort of like cocky for that state, right? That it's like the first state, or so. There's it's some like really sort of like chest thumping thing for a state that basically exists to like jack people with the tolls. The tolls. Yeah. Oh my god. Well, I think the best license plate though is the other really really tiny state, Rhode Island. It's got a wave in the background. It's got these anchors. It's got a. I think Rhode Island has the best. The best license plate. That's why I put that the question there because cool. I wanted yeah. to. I wanted to put a shout out in for the Rhode Island license plate. <laughs> I aspire someday to have residency in Rhode Island so I can have the Rhode Island license plate and coffee milk every day and the Rhode Island act. Oh, coffee milk? Yeah. Have you spent any time in Rhode Island? Like, I mean, so it's it's coffee syrup um, and milk, and it's like the state drink, and you can only get you really can only get it in Rhode Island. Um, I think there might be one place in New York now that, that has it, but basically it's, it's everywhere in Rhode Island. If you're in a Cumberland Farms or right. any convenience store, you get coffee milk, everybody drinks it. It is it's one of the things that makes Rhode Island the coolest state in America. <laughs> this segment of the podcast has been brought to you by the Rhode Island <laughs> Chamber of Commerce. <laughs> um, let's see here. Pick, uh, pick one more number. Let's, let's see what else you have um, here. Uh, six. Number six. 30 years ago this week, European Vacation debuted in theaters. From one to four, rank the vacation movies. I have not seen any of the vacation. <laughs> oh, we finally got a we finally got a dud, um, huh? Yeah, I'm, I'm busted on that. None of them. None of them. All right. Well, the, I would say the European was the worst. That's all I know. I think. <laughs> yeah, Big Ben Parliament was. But Paul, was, what would you say was the worst, Paul? The worst one. Yeah. Oh, he says Vegas Vacation is the worst. I. I think I think uh, original vacation was the best. Christmas was the second. Vegas was the third. European was the fourth. And that concludes our discussion of the vacation <laughs> movies. Um, let's turn back to, to politics and media. Here's something else I wanted to ask you. So it, is, it gets back to Twitter too, in a way, but it's not just Twitter. It's your email. It's just everything you write, everything you say on Twitter. You are subjected to, and you're you're you know you're a, a very sort of traditional objective political reporter, so you are subjected to all sorts of criticisms from both the left and the right. They question your objectivity, they question your focus. What is, two-part question here, let's start with the left. What is the biggest misconception you think that critics of political reporters like you on the left have? That's a great, um, that's a great question. Um, I mean, you know, the the right dishes it out a lot more aggressively in in those kinds of forums. But the the I mean, it's kind of tough to know where to start on this one. I do think that there is this there's this there's this meme that you hear people recycling the um, like Democrats in disarray mm-hmm. as like a joke headline that like whenever somebody writes about internal divisions in the Democratic Party there's some you know wise ass who, who tweets like oh Dems in disarray right and I get why that's recirculated and recirculated but like that's 10 years old now that's something that people put out there during um, sort of like the Bush years when the Democrats were in fact in disarray right I think there's also um, I think there's a, a fair amount of like griping on the left that political reporters have been like so hard on this president and always saying that this president is you know what are we on like the 12th version of Obama's Katrina now and uh, like why won't political reporters acknowledge that Obamacare has been um, you know successful in various ways right and 
you know, I think like there are people who can speak to that better than I can as a because I cover like elections. Um, but I do think that you know what political reporters are responsible for covering is like the way the country sort of feels about policies and how that affects just raw power politics. Like, I don't actually consider it my job to sort of vet, like, has Obamacare objectively been a success or something like that, right? That There are reporters whose job that is, and I think it's important for political reporting to be infused with fact, right? So that you're not just repeating, you know, baseless charges or whatever. Um, but I do think that there can be this, and it's on both sides, but this victim complex that you know, reporters are out to get the president, reporters are out to get unions, reporters, are, reporters who live on the, you know, you hear a lot of, like, the elitist press corps doesn't get what it's like for, you know, X group, right? And, like, there certainly are groups that reporters who tend to be, you know, um, tend to have a certain set of, uh, you know, economic characteristics or cultural characteristics have to work harder to understand. I do think there's an assumption of bad faith sometimes that, that I, is sort of just... It's just sort of sad, right, that I do think most reporters are decent people who are trying to understand the country that they're covering. and They're not out to get somebody. Um, they are looking for the next big story. Right. Was it, and you say the volume of it, the intensity of it from the right is, is much more. What, what is it? Is there one misconception that drives that that you see on the right? I mean, I think that there's a, a sense on the right that, like, every reporter is out to get every Republican. And that, and that you know, you can hear, you can see these... Um, you know, essentially like conspiracy theories that like reporters are propping up Donald Trump in order to deliberately embarrass the Republican Party and help Hillary Clinton win the election. Like, no, like reporters are not deliberately propping up Donald Trump in order to do anything. Donald Trump is a massive and amazingly interesting story, right? Like that's the bias that, and this is, the, I mean, this is the basic complaint on both sides that I think is bogus, that, that reporters are, you know, deliberately biased in some ideological or, you know, um, uh, in a strategic way for political purposes, reporters are biased in favor of like the big story that's going to blow up the next day, right? And so, like, yeah, Donald Trump is going to fall into that category, and so is you know the president saying something that like maybe he shouldn't have said, and that doesn't mean that there's a conspiracy to get get anybody. The here's one that bothers me, and it's, this is probably small scale. It's not the biggest offense, but it, I get it on Twitter a lot. Because especially being on the air where we're just sort of having more casual conversations, I will just say, well, you know, I can't believe Obama did this. You didn't call him President Obama. You're being disrespectful. You would, and, I, and I'm thinking to myself, I, you know, they called Bill Clinton Bubba for sure. <laughs> we reduced George W. Bush to one letter. Right. I mean, it's just that's a standard thing. In the first reference, Barack Obama, President Obama, whatever. And then just if you're having a casual conversation. But there's been, I've noticed a lot of sensitivity around, you know, the idea that, and I get it, there have been, I mean, there have been attacks leveled against Obama. See, I, I say Obama, I just, that's how I talk. I, I say the last name of, of every public figure. But I, I there's a, a particular sensitivity, which in a way I understand, but in another way, when it's applied towards something as, as, as sort of, you know, meaningless as that. That, that bothers me. So that's, that's maybe my pet peeve. I mean, to me, and I think it's probably more relevant for, for you being, you know, being someone who's on camera a lot, that, you know, I think we live in a world now for both reporters and politicians where you just kind of have to, like, be as transparent as you can. And when people get upset about something, like, just engage them and say, like, I called Bush Bush and I called Trump Trump, right? And, like, 
I think ultimately the vast majority of people, you know, if any, if you want to put anything anybody says under like an intense microscope, um, you can always find something that's offensive or disqualifying about it. But then you look at somebody like, you know, a Joe Biden or whatever, right, who's just like laid it all out there right. for 40 years, and eventually people just like come to appreciate your authenticity and your honesty about sort of where you're coming from. We have a question here from. Uh, look at this. We're getting. We're getting. What an audience we got tonight. Liz Smith, the o- Martin O'Malley for president. Deputy campaign manager is asking you, uh, welcome Liz, by the way, is asking you, Alex, what Twitter account is a must follow? Other than other than Liz's own. Um, yeah, there are two, and I would say I'm not gonna these are not these recommendations are not endorsements of all the contents on the feed. RT does not equal endorsement. RT does not right. equal endorsement. Um, but there are uh, one of the things that I the thing that I enjoy most about Twitter is that you get connected with people who you would never encounter otherwise in the course of doing your job or just living your life. Uh, I want to recommend um, the Twitter feed uh, Hoosier One Fourteen. Uh, huge political junkie identifies himself as a snarky librarian, which I think is accurate. Certainly from a more liberal. Uh, can, standpoint. can I ask? I, I've, I've interacted with. Do you know who this who this is? The, the name is listed as like dot dot dot. I, I do know, uh, but I'm not identity. supposed to know who it is. is we that? can okay. Off camera. We'll talk later. <laughs> on, the, on the more conservative side, uh, there's a guy named Liam Donovan uh, who works for I'm not sure which trade association in DC. Incredible political junkie, like huge trove of just like the kind of information that like Barney Frank almost ran against. Bill O'Reilly for re-election. Um, that, like, if you're just a junkie and you just like total love of the game, like follow these two guys. Let me ask you a variation on that. Um, what does it take for you to hit the unfollow button on somebody on Twitter? Well, it takes a lot now because we've got mute, right? <laughs> yeah, if you, yeah. Well, then, so what does it take for mute, and what does it take for unfollow? I mean, at this point, mute to me is just like you are no longer making me happy when I read your feed, right? <laughs> like, I'm, this is no longer fun for me, and and you know. That's to me like Twitter is it's a it's a tool for my job, but it's also like a social experience, right? And it's a great thing that like if there's a person at the party who's just being like really unpleasant and like grim and depressing all the time, you can just mute. To me, unfollow is like you're saying something that's actually offensive. Um, that's you know you you used like a like a really flagrant slur of some kind or like gone after a friend of mine in a really personal way and that's just like we're we're done here that's also for i mean block is like the that's the big one yeah i've i might have used block four or five times but i I have the thing where like when i i and i don't even tweet that much i i like to to brag to people i think i have the smallest number of twitter followers of anybody at uh, at msnbc (laughs) but um but part of the reason i don't is because I, i picture like I picture people being on the receiving end of this and, and just getting tired of me and, and hitting and like, is this going to be the one that pushes them over the top to like to mute me or whatever? Especially when I promote this show, because on Sundays or Mondays when we do this, I will relentlessly flog it. I'm like, I can only imagine how many people are, are hitting mute as I do this. Um, this is interesting. So you just recommended Hoosier114 as a follow. Hoosier114. We have Hoosier114 on the phone. Has right written in. <laughs> this is like Larry King, you know, right? <laughs> Go ahead. Um... He has a question for you, or she, I think he said to He says, uh, what is Alex's favorite non-panda zoo animal? You have to explain the context of this one to us. Well, I'm a big, I'm a big fan of, of going to the zoo. One of the, great, one of the biggest <laughs> things that I miss about Washington. I lived in Washington until, until January. 
is like the free zoo. It's like, what is better than that? But the big thing that New York has over Washington zoo-wise is that we have uh, polar bears, which Washington does not have. So I'm very into that. So you love the panda bears, but now you're, you're into the polar bears. I'm going to have to do the polar bear thing. And I like the, the, um, the birdhouse. I've never been to the, the New York City Zoo. So I, I mean, where, where is it even? Like, there's what? one in Central Park, which was, you'll appreciate this. The Central Park Zoo was built at its location by Robert Moses, close to former Governor Al Smith's apartment building. Smith was Moses' mentor, and Moses got Smith like 24-hour access to the zoo. He was a huge animal lover, uh, so that in his retirement, after he had kind of been run off the road by FDR, he could go down to the zoo any time of day or night and wow. just hang out. Um, we are running low on time. Let me let me finish with the question I, I, I ask everybody. Um, if you weren't doing this, if you weren't doing political journalism, what would you be doing in your life? I thought I was. I thought I was going to be a. Um, I thought I was going to be a prosecutor. That's what I thought I was going to do. And I was always into politics. I was always into. Um, I was a big reader, big news consumer, and like it took me a while to figure out that like I could actually be happier than going to law school and then like chasing my debt for uh, 40 years by like combining these interests that I that I had very passionately. Like a friend of mine said to me, like you seem happy when you write. And so, so here I am. How, how close did you come to going to law school? Were you? Uh... There was an internship in D.C. the summer after my junior year of college uh, at National Journal, which is sadly um, ending its print magazine. I think working there was the thing that sort of set, you know, made, opened the opened the door to like do this as a career, and that was really important. And if not for that, like I don't know, I think I I would probably be an unhappy lawyer somewhere. All right. Alex Burns, New York Times. Thanks for being with Steve, us tonight. A, a this was this was really pleasure. fun. Thank Simpsons you. fan. We learned that and many other things. Um, and thank you, everybody who tuned in on Meerkat. Thank you, everybody who's listening to the podcast. And just um, quick programming announcement. Again, we actually have a name for this thing now: Beer and Loathing. This concludes our first episode. Our second episode, under the title Beer and Loathing, is going to be next week. And I can tell you who our guest is for that. She uh, she used to be a colleague of mine. Um, at Salon.com. She edits the personal essays section there, but she is also now a New York Times best-selling author, a brand new book out about her experiences with drinking. It's called Blackout. Um, it's a fascinating memoir, but also she is one of the most entertaining people you will ever meet. She is smart. She is funny. She is friendly. She is quick. She is one of my favorite people. I loved working with her. She lives down in Dallas, but she's going to be back here next week. She's going to be here. She wrote a book about quitting drinking. She's going to be here in the bar to talk about that book. How about that? So tune in for that next week. Thank you again to Alex Burns. Thank you, everybody, for watching, and we will see you next week.